0: so, as this amazing and, and radical transformation story from a persecutor of God's church to ultimately an apostle, uh, the, the foremost preacher of, of the gospel um, in the known world after, after Jesus. But if you think about it, the apostle Peter, uh, in a different way, is also a pretty remarkable transformation story. He obviously doesn't have the same... Um, like uh, unbelief that Saul originally had, persecution that Saul has, and then to faith. But the Apostle Peter is also a pretty radical progression, pretty radical transformation story. Think about it. When you encounter Peter in the Gospels, uh, he's a knee-jerk reaction guy. He's the guy who's always saying too much and kind of wishing he could walk it back. Uh, he's boisterous, he's overconfident at times, he's impulsive. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, when they come to arrest Jesus, who is it that immediately reaches for the sword and cuts off ears? He's obviously a bad swordsman, okay, or has terrible aim at least. Um, but he reaches for the sword, he's that guy. But if you remember earlier in Peter's uh, life, when he's a disciple, there's this amazing passage in Matthew 16 ...where Peter makes his famous confession. And he confesses that Jesus really is the Christ. If you remember, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say Elijah or John the Baptist... ...or another prophet like Jeremiah. And he goes, no, but who do you say that I am? And if you recall, Peter says, you're the Christ. the Son of God. And Jesus commends Peter for that confession. But then what happens in the next passage, if you keep reading in Matthew 16 when Christ then begins to talk of what would happen to him, of how the Christ would actually affect our salvation, that it would become through suffering, through crucifixion, through death, that's when Peter gets ahead of himself and he can't understand that and says, as far as I'm concerned, you'll never suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he goes from this mountain-high Confession to them, this valley low of being rebuked by Jesus. And what Peter misunderstands in that moment is he misunderstands the role of suffering. He misunderstands the role of suffering in the salvation story, and specifically as it involves the office of the Messiah. And that's remarkable because the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter, whatever you want to call him, will eventually write a letter it writes two letters actually towards the back of your new testament, and when you get the first Peter, which we 're going to look at briefly tonight, when you get the first peter what 's amazing is that the disciple who misunderstood suffering as indicated in Matthew sixteen becomes this man who writes a letter that is one of the most encouraging letters, the most encouraging uh, writing, anybody in the throes of life, anybody in the throes of hardship or suffering could, could be given. The apostle of doubt, the apostle of misunderstanding, the apostle who's against suffering actually becomes the apostle of hope uh, for those who are in the midst of suffering. And so you see this remarkable transition uh, in this transformation from Peter. So if you have a Bible, uh, flip to 1 Peter real quick. And if you look, Look at verses uh, 1 and 2 to begin. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You see, Peter, uh, he's writing to, in this book, this, a group of likely Jewish Christians, okay, who have been expelled from Rome. They've been uprooted, okay, and they're relocated to this portion of the empire. You heard those cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, this portion of the Roman Empire that is now like present-day Turkey, all right? And whatever the circumstances of their sort of expulsion Uh, was originally, they're in this area that's now incredibly Gentile, incredibly non-Jewish, okay, in the sort of eastern portion of the empire, and they do what Christians do, which is they worship God, they contend for the faith, and over time, of course, this church, this gathering would become increasingly diverse, people from different walks of life, from different, different parts of the empire, come together in church, all right? But notice what Peter does here then. He at first kind of gives credence to their diversity. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, right? But then what does he do? He immediately goes beyond that and he grounds their identity in something even bigger, he grounds their identity in the Trinity. You saw it, he says, Father, Son, foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, who's the Son, right? For sprinkling with his blood. In other words, what Peter's doing here, if you, if you follow along, is he understands, or rather maybe we do now as modern readers, that the problem then is the same problem now. We tend to self-identify around things. And one of the things we tend to self-identify around is ethnicity. That's one of our primary kind of markers as a human. That's a good thing. But a lot of times we'll self-identify to our core. We will identify the most around our ethnicity, right? Our heritage, the color of our skin, whatever it might be. But we even go... We go beyond that. We might identify around our career, right? Before I'm anything else, I am what? I'm an attorney or I'm a real estate agent. I'm a successful businessman, whatever it might be. Before I'm anything else, I am a man. I am a woman. We might identify most importantly around whatever our gender is, whatever it might be. We self-identify around these things. We even do that sometimes in the church, that our greatest identity will be built on something that we find as our our marker. And what does Peter do here? He wants us to see that for those of us in the church, our greatest and our most fundamental identity is what? It's a Christian, right? If you look at the, the exact words he uses, our most fundamental identity that we need to know to get through life to get through the hardships of life, to get through suffering and trials, whatever is thrown our way, our most fundamental take-it-to-the-bank identity is that we are foreknown, sanctified, blood-bought children of God. That is who we are, and that that identity supersedes anything else. That it swallows up anything else. Not because the other things that mark us are bad. In fact, they're beautiful. God makes us unique. He gives us certain gifts, certain talents. He wires us certain ways, certain dispositions. But all those things fall underneath the greater banner which defines us, which is as children of God. And the only thing that can unite us, I mean, think about this last election cycle. Think about the the way our nation is still divided, right? The only thing that can ever reconcile the world... This is a cliche, right? But it's true. The gospel really is the only hope for the world. The only thing in the world that can bring everybody together, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your background, regardless of your demographic, the only thing that can bring people together in such competing diversity at times is this reality that we are all children of God. We've all been created, and yet we've all fallen. So we're all sinners. And yet God has done something in history. He sent his son to redeem us and to bring us back into community. Which is why he ends chapter, or verse 2 by saying, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What is the only thing that will make us gracious towards each other as humans, as people? It's the understanding that no matter what we look like or where we're from, we all have one thing in common. We're all sinners. And when we understand that we've been forgiven, just like our neighbor's been forgiven, that is the only thing that will breed grace, that will create a gracious atmosphere in our communities. Even in our own churches, we sometimes compete with each other over, over certain things, right? And then he says, and may peace be multiplied to you. What's the only thing in the world that can bring uh, peace and that makes us so we don't contend with each other? Well, again, the understanding that we've been set right with God and so has our neighbor because of the work of Christ. And so you can see why Peter does this. As a people who have been uprooted, they're in a foreign environment, he sends this, this important word. But keep reading. Look at verse 3. He says, This is kind of a mouthful here, but follow us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Peter wants us to see here that not only does the, the physical world, our our job, our gender, Uh, our ethnicity, that alone, those things alone don't define us. The gospel defines us. But then he goes a step further and he wants us to see what? That our circumstances also are not what defines us. Again, think of the context of this letter. These are people who have been uprooted, moved in a new territory. They're in a place where people don't know them understand them. They certainly don't know or understand Christ or appreciate who he is, so there's persecution, there's hardship, there's difficulty. And Peter says, in the midst of that, don't loosen your grip. Hold on tight. God has a plan for you. In fact, he has a plan for you from eternity past, and it includes this present moment of trial. Your present circumstances if they're ones of hardship don't define you. Because think about it, we might not be in this exact same position as the the recipients of this letter, but think about your own life for a moment. We're tempted to do the same thing. Are we not? My career is falling apart. God must not really love me. Must not be looking out for me. My relationships are, are broken and they're deteriorating and My own family's forsaken me and loved ones are falling away. God must not really love me. My health is declining. Man, where's God? God must not really love me. You see, what Peter's doing here is he's not kind of papering over the pain that these circumstances in our lives can bring. But he's saying that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, these circumstances are actually sometimes the refining tools that the Father uses uh, to accomplish his purposes from eternity past. It even encourages us if you look at uh, the verse 4, for instance, you've been called to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. You see, basically he's saying whatever the world throws at you, whatever life throws at me, it can't touch one thing, right? It can touch our relationships, it can can tear away our our health, it can tear away our careers, but it can't ever touch or tear away our salvation, the inheritance that God has guarded for us in the heavens, the blood of his precious son. And if you think about it, you go, well, man, how, did, how was Peter able to conclude this? I mean, remember, he was the one who rebuked Jesus earlier in his life for saying that suffering would be part of God's plan for salvation of the world, for the Messiah. How did Peter go from there to here now, right? Encouraging. And of course, we know the answer. Who did he witness? Who did he see? He saw the resurrected Jesus. Yes, he saw the crucified Jesus, he saw the suffering Jesus, but he also saw the resurrected Jesus. And Peter began to understand, and this is so instructive for us as well, as we go through life in this broken world, Peter began to see that in God's mysterious providence and in God's strange economy, that oftentimes the way up is the way down. The way up is the way down. And that was what Peter struggled with so badly when when Jesus said, "I I must die. You see, he was telling us right that God's salvation, God's gift of eternal life would be accomplished through the death, the atoning death of the son. And likewise for his followers, oftentimes the way up is the way down that far from suffering or hardship or trial, being a sign of God removing his hand from us, a lot of times it's where God does his best work. Sometimes God brings us low that he might too raise us up like he did his son. That's the cross-shaped life. And we do ourselves a disservice when we measure God's approval of us based upon the success of our own life. That sometimes God is most near to us when we are in those valleys and we are in those hardships. That's how he worked our salvation. Peter wants us to see it's also how he's working our sanctification. That was the amazing sort of transformation for Peter. But then he goes on. This all begins to beg the question as we kind of bring it all full circle. If the physical world doesn't define us, If our circumstances don't define us, then what does define us? What defines the Christian? Look at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, hear that again, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, tonight, yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them they were serving not themselves, but you, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Biblical language is sometimes complicated, right? And Peter uses these really kind of beautifully constructed phrases, complex phrases. And yet, what is he getting at there? It's a a simple yet kind of mind-blowing truth, really. He says, "Your your physicality, the physical world, doesn't define you, primarily. Your circumstances, whether they're good or bad, success or suffering, those don't define you. So what does define us? He says... Think about it for a moment. What defines you is as a Christian, you find yourself literally in the middle of God's redemptive plan for the world. That you have been placed smack dab in the middle of God reconciling from eternity past those who would be saved through the work of his son. That's what he's getting at here. He says your salvation, your rescue by God the gospel of Jesus Christ was the very thing the prophets of old, the prophets in the Old Testament, longed to see happen, longed to see come to fulfillment. He says, go back even a step further, he says, the angelic host of heaven, right, when God and his council before all of time began was planning out our salvation, the angels themselves were curious And they were hanging on his every word, and they couldn't wait to see what God had in store for this creation he calls humanity. He says, as a Christian, you find yourselves in the midst of this grand, redemptive story that God has been authoring from eternity past. It's no accident what's happening to you in your life this very moment. It's no accident that you're here in Florida, in Coral Ridge, 2017 that God has placed you where exactly where you are exactly as your life is according to his good and sovereign plan and more importantly whatever your current life situation is whether you're pleased with it or disenfranchised with it God says take heart because you find yourselves in the midst of an even greater story the story of my salvation of the world and I've chosen to include you because of the work of my son. You see, Peter wants us to see that we've been swept up into the greatest story ever told. That we've been swept up into the culmination of God's grace from the beginning of time. And he wants us to see that this, it's this grounding in God's story that then has a way of putting everything else in perspective. We can be patient with those who look different than us, who act different than us, who are different than us. Why? Because our identity is in something greater. Our identity is not in fixing each other or making everybody like us, but our identity is in Christ. And we can become patient and even long-suffering in our circumstances. Why? Because our identity is not built on those things. Our identity is built and founded in Christ Christ. This is why, to kind of bring it to a close, this is why Peter, in that opening phrase, go back a few verses, look at verse 3. He kind of can't contain himself, if you notice. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Well, why is he so excited? Because God's given us something. What is that phrase? According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a what? A living hope. See, Peter's talking to people who feel like there's no hope for them. Home is gone, familiarity is gone, friends are gone. They're in uncharted territory, and it's fear that the last thing that will go is hope. Because Peter recognizes that life without hope—it's not life at all. Um, I was watching last night. I was running this last night. I was watching a Downton Abbey, which is a PBS show ended a couple years ago, and it's a story of a family, an aristocratic family in early 1900s, England. And long story short, there's these two characters who are continually at odds with each other. They're both servants in this, you know, this English manor. Uh, and they both are aspiring to be the, the butler of the, the lord of the manor, okay? It's like the highest office they could have in that situation. And they're constantly at odds with each other because they're very different. They hate each other, and they're after the same job. So they're naturally competitors, and they're constantly betraying each other and trying to set each other up and wishing ill upon each other. And the end of this episode, which is many seasons into the show, finally one of them seems like he's going to be written out of the the plan. He's done something. It's a complicated scenario. And he's finally going to be dismissed as an employee of this Manner, but when and because of that as well, he's not going to have a reference. He's being let go on bad terms. He'll never work again. His life will be in ruins. And the other person who is his competitor should be happy. Should be thrilled. His his competition's gone. His the thorn in his flesh is gone. Um, his evil, you know, counterpart is gone. But for a moment, this other man considers what that man's life will be like. No reference. No more work. In that society, it would spell starvation, poverty, death. No hope. And when he considers that man's hopeless future, that hopeless life, he's moved. And he's moved to the point of actually coming alongside that man, helping him actually restoring his job. And the man actually ends up getting a job that's above his, which is sort of not what he expected. But the point is this, that he understood a life without hope is no life at all. And Peter here realizes the same thing. He wants us to understand that we have a source of living hope. We have hope that will see us through whatever season of life we find ourselves in. And it's rooted and it's grounded in the unshakable foundation of Christ Jesus the Lord who has made atonement for our sins, who has welcomed us into his family and has assured us that the good work that he has started he will carry to completion. Because he loves us and he has a plan for us. And so wherever you find yourself tonight, uh, may you take hope. May you take encouragement in the fact that God loves you, he favors you, He gave his son for you, and if he has given us his son, he will along with him give us all things. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love, for your grace. We thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, in a room of this size, there is undoubtedly a number of us in various situations. Some of us are starting off 2017 um, in the mountaintops. Things are going well. It's a great start to the year. Some of us, perhaps, are somewhere down the line. Another year has come, we're already struggling. And yet, God, wherever we find ourselves, may our hope be found in you. May we take comfort in the fact that you are the God of the universe, who knew this day before the foundation of the world, and that you hold us in the center of your loving hand. And Father, may we recognize that you have demonstrated your great love for us in this, that you have given us your son Jesus, and that you love us with an undying love, and that you will provide for us in every imaginable way. And so, Father, I pray that you would uh, encourage those of us who need to be encouraged, uh, and that you would continue to fix, never uh, look to our own selves as the source of that success, but only look to you and give you the thanks you deserve. We love you. praise pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.